Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome to my new listeners. If this is your first time, though, I would please ask that you pause here, go back and listen to part one, then you can listen to this one. For those of you who already have listened to part one and have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this episode, I am so sorry. I was out of town the last two weekends. I knew that that was going to happen, and I had planned to record this episode and get it uploaded before I left and was busy with other things, so I never got to it. I'm very sorry. Um, but therefore, just a warning, that means that the rest of the topics in this series will probably also be slightly delayed. Fingers crossed, I will still finish before Christmas, preferably, or the end of this year, 2022 at the very latest. But preferably Christmas, because, you know, I don't like to work over the holidays. And I am also planning to travel a little bit in December. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens, but I'll do my best. Speaking of holidays, yesterday was Diwali, so happy Diwali to my South Asian listeners. Diwali is the festival of lights, and it celebrates light and good triumphing over darkness and evil. Always a good thing to have and to celebrate, because, you know, sometimes we just get too overwhelmed with all the evil we see in our world, and we totally forget about that all the good that's still there. Quick announcement, though. Um, If you live in Argentine or Turner, Kansas... The Hub HUB, the Community Garden in Argentine, is having a big workday on November 5th from 9.30 to 12.30. I really hope y'all can come out. We are getting some trees, some fruit trees. Um, We're going to have an orchard. Very exciting. So we're getting bush cherries, blackberries, jujubes, which I've been told is some kind of fig. Or kind of like a fig. Let me know if you've ever had one. I haven't. I'm very excited to try it in a couple years when it produces peaches pears and asian pears um we're gonna have coffee and donuts for breakfast there will be a uh, kids activity we have a playground on site we're also gonna have fresh bread and homemade soup for lunch when we're all done and you know like i said we could we could really use your help it's gonna be a lot of work we're also planting garlic that day because uh you plant it in the late fall and you let it grow over the winter I know, crazy, but it happens. And then you can harvest it in early summer. This is a really great way to connect with your neighbors and your community and to give back. All right, here we go. Let's get it back into this. This is topic one, part two, the Empress Theater of series six, Historic Theaters. Uh, Like I said, I hope you've already listened to part one. I guess you could technically listen to this one first, but come on, it's part two. Please listen to part one first. Uh, Also, if you enjoy this topic, then I think you will also enjoy series two, Paris of the Plains, which is all about the Prohibition era in Kansas City and Tom Pendergast. All right, recap. The Empress was built in 1910. Architect unverified. Listen to part one to find out why. Um, by Sullivan and Considine Vaudeville Circuit, 
They had a few good years, but they quickly went downhill and uh, attracted fewer and fewer quality vaudeville and burlesque shows. So in 1936, the theater was rewired for sound so that they could show movies, but this did not save them, and the theater was closed in 1940 and raised to the ground. Alright, now let's talk Sullivan and Considine. John Considine of Sullivan and Considine is fascinating. Dude had a wild life. Really reminds me a lot of Pendergast, actually. My sources describe him as, quote, a big man standing 5 feet 11 with a portly build. He was a good dresser and a good talker, smooth and affable. He could mix comfortably with people from all walks of life. He didn't gamble or drink alcohol, and he later developed a reputation as a devoted family man, end quote. But he could also be violent. He had several arrests. He owned several gambling houses and theaters. Um, you know, they're also, he and Pendergast are born about the same time, and they're also both Irish. So I see a lot of similarities. And if you're thinking to yourself, now who the hell is Pendergast? What does that have to do with the Empress? Once again, please go back and listen to Paris of the Plains and the Pendergast saga within that. Alright, John C. was born in Chicago to Irish immigrants Mary Cusick Considine and John Cornelius Considine. On September 29, 1863... He attended St. Mary's College, which is now known as the University of St. Mary's in Leavenworth, Kansas, my hometown, and also KU, Kansas University in Lawrence, Kansas. But it sounds like he never graduated from either. He joined a traveling entertainment group as an actor and eventually made his way to Seattle in 1889. So by the time he gets there, he's 26. In 1892, he and his first wife, Julia, divorced. Apparently, they had married in Chicago in 1884, and at the time of the divorce, they had a five-year-old daughter, but he had been living with another woman as, quote, man and wife, end quote, for the past three or four years before this, uh, b before the divorce. So, based on this, my thinking is they got married, they immediately had a baby, and he also immediately stepped out. <laughs> My source quoted a newspaper article about the divorce proceedings, um, but it didn't say who filed for the divorce. I kind of hope it was Julia, like, I'm tired of your shit. Anyway, his second wife, the other woman, was Elizabeth Ann um, Donlan, D-O-N-N-E-L-A-N. She was born in 1871 and died 1962. It's a really long life. I just realized that. Um, but they were married for over 50 years, so just super impressive. And I guess this is why he has a reputation as a family man. <laughs> uh, together they have three children. Florence, born in 1890, died 1980. Ruth, born in 1893, death unknown. And John William Jr., born 1898, died in 1961. So after moving to Seattle, John opened and ran a, quote, box house called the People's Theater at 2nd Avenue and Washington. A box house was part theater, part bar, part gambling house, and the waitresses doubled as prostitutes. So basically, it's like all those old-timey western saloons that you see in pop culture movies. And 
Oh my gosh, back to Pendergast for a hot second. Their nicknames are even super similar. So JT Pendergast is called Boss Tom or just The Boss. And John C. was sometimes called The Boss Sport or The Statesman. Love it. My source told a story about um, when John C. tried to get all the Republican delegates in his precinct arrested so that they couldn't vote. That was in 1894. Again, kind of similar to an episode with Pendergast. Uh, but apparently his scheme was unsuccessful, uh, even though he was friends with the Jeopardy sheriff, who was like, oh yeah, sure, I'll help you. <laughs> anyway, he and William Meredith, who the deputy sheriff, um, they got tired of Seattle and decided to move to Spokane. And in Spokane... John opened another people's theater at Howard in Maine. In 1895, the state passed a law that made it illegal for women to work in a place where alcohol was sold. So he, instead of being like, okay, well, I guess. No, he's like, um, this is my business. I, I need this. So he went to court to battle this law for two years and that allowed him to stay open because it was contested, right? And if the law is not being enforced, you don't have to, you know, obey it. Um, but finally, the city he was living in, Spokane, was just like, no, we're tired of this, and they closed all the theaters in the city limits. So in 97, when, when that happens... He moves back to Seattle and he reopens his original People's Theater. And oh, some drama. Oh, drama, 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 drama. His buddy had moved back to Seattle with him and rejoined the police department and became a detective. Then they had a falling out. They're no longer friends. So that law that's prohibiting women from working in the saloons, it's, it's in effect because it's a state law. It's just that the Seattle police were like, yeah, we don't care. And they're willing to look away and let the bars and saloons and gambling houses and whatnot just do whatever they want, right? Until 1900, when Meredith becomes chief of police. He's the boss man of all the police. Now the police are like, well, we, we gotta do it. Boss man said so. Except only on John C.'s block, Okay. The block where his theater is, is the only one where they're enforcing this law. All the other gambling houses and saloons and theaters can have alcohol and women in them at the same time. So much shade right here. It's hilarious. So in retaliation, because of course John C. is pissed about this. In retaliation to get back at Meredith, John tells the city council that he saw his old buddy accept a bribe. So the mayor's like, I need you to go. And Meredith has to resign the next day. That's in 1901. So all this drama has been going on for like a year. Now, in retaliation for that, for making him lose his job, Meredith accuses John of getting one of his, quote, performers pregnant. And this was the bigger kicker of the two, to be honest with you. And that John had arranged for and paid for the girl to abort the child. Now, John C. is able to refute this allegation. He hadn't gotten anyone pregnant. And he, there's no paper trail. He hadn't paid for an abortion. 
But Meredith is just beyond pissed and threatens to get his revenge. He's like, okay, that didn't work. I'm going to get you. So on June 25th, 1901, a mere four days after his forced recognition. I mean, this is just like, bam, bam, bam. It all happens within a week, right? Four days after his forced resignation, I think I said that wrong the first time, from the police force, Meredith loads up on weapons. He's got a, quote, sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun, a 32 Colt revolver, a 38 Bulldog revolver, which is a gun with a very short barrel, and a knife, end quote. He goes downtown, because he knows his old buddy's schedule, he goes downtown, finds John outside the drugstore with his brother Tom, and a patrolman, just regular cop dude, and he shoots him. He shoots John. He's standing like two feet behind the man, aiming at his head with the shotgun, and he misses. John runs into the drugstore. He's closely followed by Meredith. Meredith shoots him again, only grazes John's neck, drops the gun, and reaches for the thirty-two revolver. When John realizes that he's trapped at the back of the store, no way out, he turns around and tackles Meredith. They wrestle over the pistol... John wrenches it from his grasp and badgers him in the skull with a few times before shooting him point blank three times. There are conflicting eyewitness accounts about all of this, of course. I mean, this is an extremely brief and violent episode, and witnesses are just beyond shocked. They have no idea what's going on. But the state decided to charge John and his brother Tom, who had been outside the drugstore during this whole period and came in after. John shot Meredith, um, charged both of them with first-degree murder. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, he didn't just shoot him point-blank, and he was fine, right? He, he killed him. He shot him and killed him. So they d- decide to try John first, and his trial is scheduled for November 1901. About two and a half weeks later, after the start of the trial, the jury acquits him of all charges, and so therefore charges against his brother are dropped as well. But y'all, this changed John C.'s life. I mean, of course, it had to, right? After this, he totally altered his business interests away from saloons and box houses and more towards theaters, like performance theaters, right? He bought Edison's Unique Theater, which was a very old theater in Seattle, one of the first, and he started hosting a variety of shows. So then over the next few years, because he's a really good businessman, He's able to open up seven more theaters across the Pacific Northwest. In 1906, John traveled to New York City for the Fraternal Order of Eagles National Convention, and there he met Tim Sullivan. So this order, which John helped found in Seattle in 1898, um, was to, quote, discuss how they should handle the ongoing musician strike. According to most popular accounts, after deciding to work together to settle the strike, the men began musing about democracy and brotherhood. Then and there, they decided to start the Seattle Order of Good Things to carry out the spirit of their ideas. End quote. And I tell you what, we're going to pause here for a hot second, and I'm going to switch to Sullivan, and then we can talk about their businesses together. So, Tim Sullivan, a.k.a. Big Tim a.k.a. the King of the Bowery, also has a wild history. And guess what? Also super similar vibes to Pendergast. 
Once again, please listen to the Pendergast saga from season two, the Paris of the Plains. Um, and for those of you who are kind of wondering, hmm, Barry, that sounds familiar. Is that like the Barry Boys podcast? Yes. Yes, it is. I have not listened to their show. Sorry. I always mean to, and I just haven't done it yet. Um, but I know of it, and I did a quick search of their site. So while I didn't see that they specifically have an episode on Big Tim, and I could be wrong, um, I'm sure that they talk about him. And it appears he may have um, been a character in several of their episodes, even if he wasn't the main character. Anyways, so who is Big Tim? Timothy Daniel Sullivan was born July 23rd, 1862 in New York, New York. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to sound quite so sarcastic, but honestly, here, let's try this again. Surprise, surprise. Findagrave.com only lists his mama instead of only listing the father. And her name was Catherine Connolly Sullivan, born in 1843, 1893. Or, sorry, died in 1893. There we go. Um, thankfully, I did find his daddy's name on another site. His father was Daniel Sullivan. Both of his parents were immigrants from Kinmare in County Kerry, Ireland. Timmy was born in Five Points, which is a slum in New York. According to People Pill, a website about famous people, Daniel fought in the Union during the Civil War, but, um, sorry, for a second I got confused. This is Daddy Daniel. Fought in the Civil War, but he died of typhus in 1867 when he was only 36, leaving behind a wife and four children. Then in 1870, Catherine remarried Lawrence Mulligan, and they had six children together. This biography also called Lawrence an alcoholic. So what was it like for little Timmy growing up? Well, he's living in a slum, and I'm not saying that derisively, it's actually a slum. And he's one of ten children, so life is really hard for him. From what I read, Five Points was, quote, the most dangerous and notorious neighborhood in the history of New York City, end quote. It was near what is now modern-day Columbus Park, between the Civic Center and Chinatown, and it was built upon the former site of a pond. The pond was drained in the late 1700s. The houses there were cheaply made, very cheaply made, and because this used to be a pond, the ground is still really loose and wet and unstable, so the houses are not stable. During the mid-1800s, it was largely populated with Irish immigrants, but other minority groups lived there as well, just primarily Irish. Therefore, it's also the home turf of the Irish Mafia. Have any of y'all seen the movie Gangs of New York or read the book? That all takes place inside Five Points. So, like I said, he's having a hard life growing up, right? Super poor... I wouldn't be surprised if he started out um, with Mafia Connections really young. By the time he's 22, he owned or partially operated six saloons. So he's got a good head for business. Okay, good. In 1886, uh, which is 20, he's 22 at the time, he married Helen Fitzgerald. 
And this, according to my source, is when he really got involved with the machine. So refresher course on the machine, if you haven't listened to Paris of the Plains, the machine is in reference to machine politics, which dominated the early 20th century. Basically, it's the only way that shit got done back then. Quote, Urban political machines, built largely on the votes of diverse immigrant populations, dispensed jobs and assorted welfare benefits while offering avenues of social mobility at a time when local governments provided a paucity, I'm not sure if I'm saying that word right, of such services, end quote. Again, quote, By 1892, Tammany Hall leader Richard Kroger appointed Sullivan, Sullivan, sorry, leader of his assembly district on the Lower East Side, end quote. All right, so Tammany Hall, a.k.a. Tammany, is the executive committee, uh, I'm really stumbling on my words now, I'm sorry, executive committee of the Democratic Party in New York City and historically exercised political control through the typical boss politics, which was a blend of charity and patronage. But Sullivan also got involved in state and national politics. He was elected to the State Assembly from 1887 to 1893, then to the State Senate from 1894 to 1902, then Congress from 1903 to 1906. He's moving up and up, but he returned to the State Senate in 1909 and remained there until 1912. He was re-elected to Congress in 1912, but he had to decline his appointment, and I will explain why in a moment. First, let's talk about some of his policies. So, he supported women's right to vote, which is great, awesome. And in 1911, he was, this is the really big thing for him, actually. He was responsible for passing the Sullivan Act, which y'all have actually heard of this past summer. It was that concealed carry law in New York um, it required gun owners to to have a permit to conceal carry, and the Supreme Court struck it down. That law was passed in 1911. Quote, Sullivan was an expert in using electoral fraud to retain his power. In quid pro quo arrangements, constituents voted the way that they were instructed. In return, they were the recipients of Tammy largesse, which included coal in the winter, Clambakes and outings in the summer, jobs on the city payroll, and all-around assistance, end quote. And, of course, he got people to vote for him multiple times, the same person, multiple times, illegally. Um, but that's, that's what boss politics is, right? And being involved in boss politics, Sullivan actually funded several gang members and was involved in prostitution, gambling, and extortion. I jumped a little ahead a little bit there, but I really wanted to keep all the political stuff together. So let's jump back for a second. He and uh, John C. met in 1906. Quote, the two men formed Sullivan and Considine Circuit, a group of theaters in which Sullivan provided the financing and Considine provided the labor. 
and they expanded the circuit to 37 locations, stretching from the Midwest to the Pacific Coast. By 1911, the circuit had teamed up with several smaller independent theater owners, as well as Marcus Lowe, I think I'm saying that correctly, it's L-O-E-W, who owned 20 theaters in New York City area. This allowed the circuit to offer its better acts 70 weeks of nonstop work in dozens of locations around the country, end quote. So because they have, um, I mean, with Marcus, they have almost 60 theaters across the country. They can be like, okay, Troop A, Troop X, you can work in New York for a week and then we're just going to move you across the country and you're going to have 70 weeks of work. So the reason that Big Tim declined his seat in Congress in 1912 is because he had syphilis, and he died in 1913. And, you know, that sucks for him, but it's actually worse because even before he died, his um, brothers, and I want to say maybe a couple of his sisters too, had him legally declared insane, which, if you know anything about syphilis, is probably true. Um, It starts off with, like, physical deformities and then it attacks your mind and you really do just lose everything mentally right and then it it kills you um and they did all that because they actually wanted to be able to access his money and that didn't quite happen but to have your family turn on you like that and be like ha 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 bye-bye that just sucks anyways his sole legitimate daughter had died in infancy, but he had fathered at least six other children with various mistresses. Try that again. Mistresses. There we go. Most of whom were famous actresses. After Big Tim's death, their joint business, the vaudeville circuit, which he had been bankrolling, went totally downhill. So, Considine tried to make a deal with Marcus, um, who had had Business, other business dealings outside of this with Sullivan. Lowe agreed to buy up some of the theater houses in the circuit, but then he backed out at the start of World War I. So foreclosures on the Sullivan-Considine circuit began in 1915, which is just after the start of World War I. John C. moved to L.A. sometime before 1922, and he lived there for the remainder of his days. He died in February 1943. His son, John Jr., was a famous movie producer, and his grandsons, John and Tim, were both famous actors. That will be the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me as we explored this piece of Kansas City's history. I had a lot of sources for this episode. Excuse me, for this episode. Uh, Findagrave.com, peoplepill.com. HistoryLink.org, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the Encyclopedia of Chicago were my main sources. I hope you will consider supporting the show. If you want to, you can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You can also give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's spelled ko-fi.com slash homegrown KC. If you become a Patreon subscriber, you can give as little or as much as you want a month, even as little as a dollar. When you sign up and create an account, then subscribe to the show, you will be charged that day, 
and then on the first of every month following. If you become a patron, you get three things. An item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. A shout out on every episode and social media post. So thank you for your continued support, Bjorn. Um, sorry, Bjorn, Joan, and Gina. You also get access to exclusive bonus content featuring local historians, archivists, and museum experts. Everyone who simply donates will receive a shout out on the next available episode, but you do not get anything from the merchandise store or access to that bonus content. However, I lo- really love this. If you give a donation on coffee, 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change, which is really serious, y'all. Quick aside, last weekend when I was driving home from seeing family in Oklahoma, we drove through a literal dust storm. So all the crops had been harvested, so all that was left was the topsoil, and we were driving through 20 to 40 mile an hour winds kicking up all that dust. It was literally like driving through fog. And so as I'm riding along, I'm like, hmm, I wonder. Well, turns out dust storms have become increasingly popular over the, um, not popular, um, common over the past 20 years. And for the past couple of years now, climate scientists have been warning that if we don't uh, start doing something serious about climate change and adjust our agricultural practices, We could be headed for another Dust Bowl, which sounds really terrible. So let's fight climate change, please. If you cannot support me monetarily, which I understand, inflation sucks right now. It's really bad. You can still support me by following and subscribing to my show on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Tumblr. Also my YouTube channel. I'm a homegrown Casey on all of them. And make sure to rate and review me wherever you listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts. You can visit my website for additional information on each topic. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. You can also sign up for my newsletter there. Um, On the first of every month, you'll get an email that says, hey, here's what's coming up in the podcast and new and exciting announcements. Someday I may do giveaways. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of my social media networks. Love to hear from y'all. If you want to check out what merchandise is available, you can go to www.zazzle.com store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. That's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. And I don't know what's currently on sale, but there's always a sale going on there. And I've got a lot of stuff available. Hats, socks, long sleeve shirts, hoodies, tote bags, coffee cups, beer mugs, pretty much anything you want. Thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. And to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening. Cheers.
can't seem to shake this feeling And I can't seem to get you off my mind 